Welcome to another Pint with Shawnee B. I'm sitting in a very swanky London advertising agency with one of the true ad legends. She doesn't like all this kind of pomp and circumstance, but she is a person who has been at the top of the game for well over three, four decades. She is a multi-award winner, a person who cares a lot about big things that disturb the industry these days, like gender equality, stereotyping. Uh, she spent 33 years at my favorite ad agency, the business that got, the thing that got me into the business, a company called BBH. They were an absolutely amazing company, still are, but were really, really great in the 80s and 90s. And I'm welcoming Rosie Arnold. Hello. You're now working for BBDO. Yeah. You were employee AMB. 11. I was at BBH, that is, not oh, at AMB. <laughs> and you spent 33 years there. So, so the reason I said it was so important for me was I was a nipper back then in Dublin. Yeah. And this was a company that was doing Agendas, Levi's, Audi. And every single piece of work was on News at 10. And it wasn't just done for awards, it was done for the brand because yeah. it was what the brand needed. And everything, I, I don't, think, don't think you pitched creative work at the time. No, we didn't. You know, one of the things I loved about BBH, and it's relevant I suppose today, is because they started because they had real principles about how the business should be. It wasn't about getting rich quick. Mm. So they really absolutely believed in the power of advertising to build brands. People criticise advertising a lot, and I always sort of think, well, you know, if you've, you've got a house to sell, to sell, you have to advertise it. And, you know, I, I always end up really believing in the products, and I think BBH actually did take care about the clients they chose, and then mm. cared about building them as a brand. And I think Audi was a great example. Back in the 80s, when they first won the business, everyone was driving BMWs, and the ambition was to sell more Audis than BMWs, mm. which I think they surpassed, maybe, maybe it was only 10 years ago, or maybe late mm. years ago, but they actually have achieved that ambition. And it wasn't about awards, it was about the right job for the right client. Yeah, so they invented a term called Vorsprung Dirk Technik, which I hope a lot of you remember and know, because I think they still use it. Still but use it, yeah. it, was a, it was a progress through technology, but it was a very brave thing of using a German tagline in England, Britain, uh, for a German car. Yeah, no, I mean, history, so it was... That was John Hegarty who, who saw it at the factory. Yeah. And I remember when we were back in Frith Street, everybody saying, you can't use that, John. And John's like, no, I'm, you know, this is going to be great. Yeah. And everybody thinking that, oh, it's just a big chunk of German technology. And, you know, what the hell does that mean? And he was, he was insistent on it. And he was completely right. But it's, it's really borne out by a lot of the work that comes out today from people like Byron Sharp, where you have, you know, meaningless distinctiveness. So, you yeah. know, it's, it's meaningless, but it's very distinctive. It stands out. It's better than yeah. we drive. Everything we do is yeah. driven by you. We're all yeah, these yeah, kind of taglines. Yeah, exactly. Brilliant. You were, did I read somewhere that you were, you're actually Scottish? Yeah, I was born in Where's Glasgow. Your well, yeah, here we go. <laughs> For the born rest in of Glasgow. the podcast, we will be doing it in Scottish accent. <laughs> we will, we are. Just give me that whiskey. No, I'm born in Glasgow. Right. Um, but my dad died when I, just before I was four. And my mum moved down to Dorset. She was half English, half Scottish, and my dad was. Mm-hmm. And they'd been, he'd been in the army and they'd moved around all over the place and ended up back up in Scotland and oh. then I think my mum had always wanted to move down south and just get away from the tragedy that was my dad's death so oh. you know we I ended up in Dorset which is a beautiful place was to grow up pastoral upbringing pastoral I, I, well then we moved to Tarrant Keenston which is just outside Blandford mm. which is in the middle of nowhere but it, in a way I look back and go god it was it was a bit strange but kind of idyllic childhood in that my grandmother and great aunt moved in with my mum so I had this old matriarchy right. um, my brother poor boy was sent off to boarding school which I think wasn't great because he was pretty young then 
my mum felt she was doing the right thing for him. Mm. So even though you know he was eight, his dad had just died, mm. uh, she sent him to boarding school in Somerset, and it was right. quite a while before we moved to Dorset. So I really feel that was not the sensible thing to do. Although she did it because she thought that was the right thing, and a boy needs men, and you know it was the best education, mm. and you know I think it was pretty tough for him. It was a pretty tough boarding school. And what about your school? What about your early life? Was it? <laughs> God, it feels really weird and indulgent talking about me. Um, I, I I went through a number of different things. So I started at the village school, which was hilarious because it was basically two rooms, which had. I'm children. picturing Vicar of Dibley kind of. Well, it was yeah, it was. It was and, but it, the village school then had you know um, kids from the age of four to sixteen in two classrooms. Really. And we just sat round a table. My mum, after the first term, I think, went. This is really not very good at all. So then sent me to an incredibly good private junior school, whatever called it, which I loved. And, and then there's some weird things, because mum was brilliant, but we just didn't have any money. So she was quite posh, but right. poor. So I was always in the second-hand stuff, and throughout that time at school, I had a blue and white check gingham dress. I have that little, in my head little already. white yeah. collar. Everybody else had blue and white striped nylon dresses, because that oh. was the 60s, and that was very groovy. Yeah. So I was in all the school photographs as this one kid. <laughs> In a completely different uniform from everybody else. And I kind of decided that I was going to like my uniform better yeah. than everybody else's and not feel like, yeah. you know, second-hand rows. But it was at that point you decide you're either going to feel sorry for yourself or that you're unique and different and this yeah. is much better. than. When did the artistic thing pop for you? I believe uh, my grandmother right. got into art school, yeah. although the war came along and she ended up nursing. I don't know, I was always drawn to art. I always just loved it. It was always the place I felt... And so when you when you when you finished actual proper school, you just went straight into art college, right? Into yeah, yeah. No, no. I went. I went. I did a year's foundation course, right. Bournemouth, which was brilliant. We were in a place called Shelley Park, which is right. Shelley's old house, right. and I loved it. Um, I loved it because you could use any media. You could do etching or sculpture or photography or life drawing. Everything was accessible on that site, and it, because you do a module where you spend a couple of weeks here, a couple of weeks there. You knew all the technicians, and I really loved doing multimedia. And so, actually, I then went to Central St. Martin's to do graphics. And it was a bit of a shock, because I think I thought, oh, you know, you, you invent the game, or you write the book, and then you illustrate it, and you do the type. Or, yeah. And I sort of realised at that point, you really were meant to do just one. So you either did the yeah. typography. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm much more interested in the ideas. And if I'm honest, I think, technically... I'm probably better at ideas than I am at the execution right. of them. But you were in fine art, were you? No, I went into graphics. Graphics, okay. Because I was like, right, I need to, I need to earn some money, yeah. <laughs> and I'm not going to make it through fine art. You know, the first term, I was really very undecided about whether I should actually move into fine art. I, mm. I discovered etching in a big way, and there was a really great tutor called Norman Aykroyd. But then, my boyfriend, who then became my husband, said, well, why are you going to do advertising? Advertising is all about ideas, that's what you love. And I went and sort of dug out these um, DNAD annuals that he pointed me in the direction mm. of, and just looked at them, oh my God, people actually do this as a job? You know, they were all the things you wanted. You yeah, wanted to be absolutely. narrow and wide, right? Yeah, because, yeah, yeah, so it was great. You know, like, you can think of ideas for films, and you mm. can do, you know, posters, yeah. and, you know, it was, it was a real revelation to me. So um, I sort of looked up the the work that I liked best and found out who did it mm. and then pestered them till they saw me. I found a wonderful woman called Judy Smith who worked at CDP, which right. was the sort of Where I BBH. Did Dublin. you work at CDP? Dublin, yeah. Brilliant. Well, they were, the, they were the BBH 
of yeah. the 70s, really. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, work, yeah. I actually, in my school, you know, university holidays, would go and work there for a couple of weeks here mm. and there and build, build my portfolio up. And then they were the ones that told me that this little hotshot BBH yeah. was looking for some freelance over Christmas. So BBH became this kind of third, it was, wasn't it probably the first of this third wave agency that was kind of touted around in the late 80s? Or I don't, I, it's interesting because now I'm sitting here at AMV, uh, AMV have got their 40th anniversary coming up next week. Right. So I think AMV were probably ahead yeah. of BBH in that sense. I think BBH was a bit more spiky. Mm. I mean, it's, it's interesting because you look back at the work that right. both companies have done and it's astonishing and still continues to be really mm. amazing. BBH just... Sorry, AMV, that I'm here now. Um, were cooler, and you know they had Levi's. They were just a bit edgier. Well, there's a guy called John uh, Hegarty who set it up with Bartle and Bogle. But I, I met John when a couple of years ago, and I'd never met him. And I was like, kind of a little bit yeah. starstruck. It, yeah. was, it was on the in Cam. He'd just been given the order of whatever St George Award. And I was saying to my friends, I'm going to go up and say hello to him because he's really important to me. And you know, he gave me an hour chatting. I mean, he's such a kind, generous guy. But I said to him, John, how come in 2000 and whatever year, 15, how come in 2015, your agency, and you're still there, like Steve Jobs, yeah. is not doing all that great work anymore? You know, he said, people like you, the planners. <laughs> you're the guys who screwed it up. And I'm like, no, John. Oh. He's joking. He's wicked. But, He's, but he gave him. me like so much of his time. Talked to me. He's very big in Cork, and he, he loved Kinsale as well. Yeah. He was talking about when he's Irish, and he's Irish. Yeah, he's Irish. What's so he like? gave me he gave me a great time. Um, and you spent the other thing I'm amazed about is something that rarely happens. Even back then, you spent so long. Loyalty is yeah. that big with you? Yes, I think it is. I, also, um, and this is where I might be inappropriate about gender. I think a um, number of things. BBH, in my view, was the best agency for a creative person to be. I've always been about having a, a lovely, happy life doing the work I want to do rather than titles and money and position. So I wasn't sort of career ambitious in terms of I didn't want to set my own agency up because I couldn't have bettered BBH. So I felt like if I'd wanted to do my own agency because I had a burning yearning to do something differently, yeah. which I didn't have, or that I wasn't getting the opportunity to work on the briefs that I wanted Best to work brief. on, which I, I was. And I was surrounded by the most brilliant people mm. who I adored. So there was loyalty, but there was also an element of selfishness in it because I was just doing the thing that was best for me. Mm. And I'm sort of very sensible to the fact that, you know, every now and then, of course, people come and offer you lots of money and things, and you just go, well, yeah. Did it nearly happen a few times? A couple of times. Yeah. I, it, it nearly happened. The time it nearly most happened, actually, weirdly, was... I'd had a back operation and had some time off work. I'd got two sons and I realised that I needed to spend more time with my kids because right. I was the breadwinner and I just thought, you know what, I'd like to work four days a week. Because mm. I just, and actually that one day off probably will be spent doing chores so I can see and spend Indeed. time with them <laughs> at the weekend. At that point, BBH were pretty adamant that no, 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 no creative works four days a week, you just can't work. Uh, it was quite a strong work ethos there. I thought, I'm going to have to go because I really need to have this time. I was off another job. I didn't really want to take it, but I just thought I, I, I owed it to myself. And, yeah. uh, and BBH went, oh, okay, 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 we'll, we'll try, we'll try, we'll see how it goes. You pioneered the four days. I pioneered, I did pioneer the four days. I did, I did. <laughs> and I, not only that, I, like when I was pregnant, the whole setup then, 
was really tough, which was, I think you got 18 weeks off and 12 weeks at half pay, and then after that was no pay. And it was like 40 quid a week or something ridiculous. Still better than America today. Yeah, but I mean, again, I there was another couple of people who were also pregnant on the board with me at the time, and we all did our homework. A planner, Hilary Woods, well done, mm-hmm. Hilary, um, and Barbara Noakes, who'd had been pregnant, and we looked into what other companies offered, mm-hmm. and then put forward a proposal which was six months off, three months paid, three months not paid, and we also pioneered two weeks paternity leave. This was I've, all at BBH? All at BBH, right. back 20, so were you 26 seen as years like, ago. How was that received? Because I mean, it was still a patriarchal company. Because we were kind of sensible and measured about it, and fair, I think they only let men have one week paternity leave. I think they were tough on that. Right. At the time, it was quite a revolutionary thing. Yeah. Now it's atrocious, but... Um, you know, Let's go into that. I mean, so the ad business is known for its slap and tickle, mad men kind of... Which is absolutely true. I mean, yeah, I, I started working... Yeah, totally true. I started working in 1987 in Dublin. And, I mean, it was, it was nothing else. I was only 19. It was nothing else I knew with that. But, you know, when you look at Mad Men, that was 10 years after, about 15, 20 years after Mad Men. But you could still hear, you know, everyone smoking and there was a couple of people who had drinks in their... yeah. Room, but you know, to talk to me about it because you know, I know you're friends with Cindy Gallup, and there's there's a few women who have been very very vociferous and and, and, and loud about pushing the gender equality uh, agenda. Yeah, where has it got to? I don't know if you saw. I wrote a piece in Campaign recently about it because so many people go, why aren't there more, myself included, um, female creators? Because there are a lot of students. You know, when you look at the advertising courses. There is at least 50% hmm. male, if not more women. 70% in my course. Yeah, and then people. where do they go? So, yeah. you know, people would say, oh, it's because they want children. Like, no, I don't think that's the reason. No, thank you, Neil French. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't get me started. <laughs> um, it occurred to me that broad generalisation, that men and women have slightly different tastes. So at the end of a weekend, and you might ask, well, what did you do? And what, what film did you go and see? Yeah. You know, you probably know which films are going to appeal largely yeah. to mixed audiences yeah. or to men or to women, yeah. you know, chick flakes or yeah. uh, whatever. Some of them are into briefs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There is an innate taste difference between men and women. And if you're a creative, you are writing an idea, even though it's aimed at a different audience, mm. um, but you're writing something that you're probably going to like or relate to or be interested in because you're you know, drawing on your own creativity. And if you're a woman, the likelihood is that you are then going to present that idea to a male creative director and he's going to decide whether he likes it or not. Yeah. And then if it gets through him, it's going to a client who, guess what, is probably male. Yeah. And then if it gets through that and you're going to have the, the film made or the photograph taken, or probably male. Um, and then if your career is going to progress, you really need to win awards. I'm sorry, it's a fact of life. And then you look well, at the, the awards juries and guess what? They're largely male. And then I look back historically to see, you know, what has been winning all the big awards. And guess what? It's beer, it's technology, yeah. it's cars, mm. it's sport, it's football. And it's because it's not that they're biased. It's mm. just that they sit there and vote for things that they love. And I think recently, whenever the first John Lewis ad came out. There's been a softening and I also think there is a much more male creatives and actually men in general now are not so machismo. Um, You know I'm really happy to see that men race home to see their kids to put them to bed which when I first started in industry men raced to the pub 
to stay yeah. there so that they and didn't they go home. And to see their kids when they were being born. Yeah. So, you know, I think, I think men have changed, thank mm. goodness. But I think the industry still hasn't. And I think there are those innate tastes. So if you're a female creative trying to make a career for yourself, you've got to get your work bought, you've got to get it made, and you've got to get it awarded. And while we've still got a lot of men as the sort of the guarding posts to those um, things, it's, it's, it's going to be tough. It falls as well, though, into stereotyping when you talk about the, the sort of calibre of work you have. I mean, I worked 10, 15 years at Procter & Gamble uh, across different agencies, and the idea that the mother hugs the child at the end is seen yeah. as the emotional piece, and it's all mothers in the kitchen, and it's all that kind of yeah, reinforcement yeah, no. and stuff. And the idea that there's occasionally something like a and always or, or you know, the, the, the tampon advertising in Australia will come out and break some barrier where you don't have blue liquid or yeah, whatever. Yeah. But, you know, there's this sort of a, this is how it's done issue. about This is how you advertise to a woman. Yeah. This is how you advertise to a, a man who loves football. This is how you advertise to yeah, a beer Yeah, no, it guy. is, it is. And all that stereotype. I remember I was in, when I was in Asia, we were doing a kind of a, a big P&G push at Saatchi. And we had this ad for a nappy for Pampers. It was it was a printout, the usual big picture, yeah, yeah. small logo, and um, but it was it, it was it was a nappy that was done like a hammock. Yeah. And the idea was it's very comfortable. It's a really yeah, nice right, idea, yeah, right? Yeah. And I was something bugging me about it, and I, I was working with David Nobay, and he was I said, "Oh, it's great, it's great." And it was all shot against a sort of grey black, you know, spotlight kind of weird yeah. PlayStation nappy. Great. And Andy Greenaway came in to work with me in Asia, and he just looked at us and that's all wrong, you know. And I said, "Why?" He said. The idea is really good, but it needs to be surrounded by bunnies and rabbits and little, you know, it needs to be, it needs to be beautiful and warm, like yeah. a baby. You yeah. can put a baby in that, not yeah. like some monster from an alien movie. <laughs> and it's exactly right, you know, this kind of thing. That's what wins, if it looks cool, if it looks yeah. clinical yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. What about the whole, just while we're on it, the, the sort of stereotype thing, it's another thing that you, you, you raise. Yeah, I'm against. passionate about it. Yeah, no, I think I totally understand, because we're working such short time formats that you you need people to get what you're talking about immediately but I think by reinforcing stereotypes we're doing the world a disservice you know and I, I one of the things I'm passionate about is the opportunity that we all have to make the world a better place so to make the norms die away so that you know anybody's accepted so you know I, I do this thing to myself where and and you know any team where Particularly when you're looking, you've got an idea through and then you look at the casting and you go, well, does it have to be a woman putting the food on the table? You know, the other thing gets me is whenever you've got a family driving in the car, it's always the man who's driving. Does it have to be the man who's driving? Could it be the woman who's driving for once? Or do they all have to be white middle class? Do they all have to be straight? Does it have to be a heterosexual couple? Does it have to be a boy kicking the football? Does it have to be a girl playing with the doll? And I think, you know, I think the world has really opened up to that. And I, I really notice now as the racial mix as well, which is brilliant. Mm. It, it, it has it is been going to a little bit of a tokenistic. Have we got our you know have we got our person of color? Have we got a, a disabled person? Have we? Which is actually great because I think you have to do that, and then it just becomes the norm. And well, I've, I've been in a situation where I've been on the phone. I don't mind calling them out because my career's over. But you know, it was uh, it was on Gillette, and people in Russia said, "Oh, we don't want any black people in the ads." I, I had and I'm that like, what? a year ago. You know, that was well, you know, three years ago, yeah. yeah. You know, and, and, and I'm sort of told that Polish people hate black people, so we can't have any black people in their ads. And 
it was an American company, and I was like, well, hang on a minute. Do Polish people not go and see blockbuster Hollywood exactly. movies? Because do you know what? I don't believe... They, no, they, they, make, they <coughs> make all the black people white. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and you just go, and you're an American company. You need to have a point of view which says, this is coming from us as a company, and this is our beliefs, and... You yeah, know, this is this is what we're going to yeah, present. Do a Benetton, you know, you know exactly yeah. because you know if you keep pandering yeah. to that sort of racism, we'll never change the world. So, yeah. I, I just think we need to stand up to clients who say, "Oh no, we can't. They don't even go." My friend Craig Damrer is an artist, and he just completed like a five-year thing, which took him forever. But he went through every frame of Citizen Kane, the entire movie, and he took out <clears throat> everything except black people. And his project Amazing. left the soundtrack. So it's all scratchy white and occasionally a black person comes in and out of the thing. And it's called All the, all the Black People in Citizen Kane. And there's only 26 people in it. Wow. And, uh, but I mean, that that's more, do, do give me the link. I'd love to. I mean, in a way, I hate to say it, but it's sort of more understandable back in whenever that was, 1940s, was it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, there was like more, a band, a driver, a guy comes in and gives them tea, yeah. a, a cop. He did that. He launched it around the time that Hollywood had its big. I mean, this year Hollywood is going to be all about you know what. I mean, yeah. we're, we're we're recording this interview just around. Let's call it finally men who are groping and being nasty to women and sexually nasty than us are being called out. One of my friends was saying to me, "This is all disgusting. This trial by social media." Mm. And I'm like, going, "Well, you know, if you take say Lenny Henry and all these guys who come and front up who are famous for charities." They also have to front up and be the poster children for this thing which is rampant in advertising, it's rampant yeah. in factories, and it's rampant everywhere. Where is your head out of that? It's this really shit? interesting because I've got a um, 24-year-old, 26-year-old son, and, and you know we have girlfriends and friends, mm. and so we have lots of heated debate about it because at some point you sort of go, oh, God, you know, there was an outcry about somebody putting his hand on a woman's knee in the Graham Norton uh, show. I didn't yeah. see it. And there's a sort of point where you go, you cannot compare putting a hand on a knee in a public environment with the whole audience looking yeah. to, to rape. Groping, yeah. you know. But what I found really interesting was, at the end of it, we kind of decided, well, maybe you could, because very interesting girl saying, you know, the thing is, you, there's a point where you need to make people question their behaviour. And even if there are a few scapegoats where you feel that is really probably not fair mm. that they've been caught out and all caught up or held up or whatever you know there's a couple of instances which I can't go into as related to my son and I felt his friend had been wrongly really accused, accused. Yeah. but you know unfortunately I think there are going to be a few people caught in the crossfire it is because it's been acceptable for so long and it's just a way of making people just stop and think about their behavior and I hate injustice I'm a flirtatious person. I might yeah. put my hand on somebody's knee and think, oh my God, I don't want that to be... It, it will have been done with affection, but I can see I'm much more careful. Not When I became a creative director, I became much more circumspect yeah. about how you behave because however you feel the same as everybody and you feel friendly, you are actually in a position of authority and you have to be mindful of that. You know, yeah. my view is you know yeah. yourself. Yeah. Now, I mean, there's a sort of people you know, wave your hand if other people things. misinterpret it, then you've got to be careful. And I think you know, mm. I mean, I worked for seven years in New York, and you know, as soon as you squeak out of line, I know oh. someone's going to report you to H. No, I know even if your eyes go up and down, and you or you know, use the F word if they want to. But yeah. you know, see, there's also if they want to, they can always say, "Oh no, it's fine," but then, "Oh no, I don't like him." Yeah, yeah. I don't like her. Yeah. 
So, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I sort of feel it, it's great because there's a lot of pressure on, you know, men and women. It, it, you know, I mean, I'm sure it happens to boys as well. Yeah. You know? And I think it's, it's when it's somebody in a position of authority and power, mm. um, sort of sexually compromising in yeah. any way somebody. The thing that is happening now, which I like, possibly through the fact that we have media, you know, we have the, the internet to, to, to disseminate stuff, is that people are not afraid to come forward. Yeah. I mean, we have the Aaron Johnson thing in JWT, which I was working there with, with her at the time. And you hear all the, mm, you, you, you hear all the kind of insidious rumor that goes mm -hmm. on behind why someone like her might be doing something like that, reporting the MD for, I suppose, bullying and, and inappropriate behavior. But you have to start with the victim. Yeah. You have to assume she, he is telling the truth. Yeah. And also how hard it is. You know, I mean, yeah, I, think, no. I think that's the thing that I find upsetting when people yeah. then start to criticise the victim. Mm. That actually, to stand up and say, well, it happened to me in this place, that's not an easy thing to do. And so it's, it's humiliating. Like the you were wearing, and, and what you know, did you lead them on? And exactly. Blah, blah, you know. You know, so, so that all needs to be sort of... Yeah. yeah. Which Segwaying that into one of the reasons I left advertising was I found it, and I love the fact that you're still, you're probably still as optimistic and passionate as you were 35 years ago, whenever it was you started. I got kind of so jaded by the thing, possibly due to banging my head against a wall, um, and apologies P&G uh, for, for, for that, but, um, you know, morally questionable uh, business, somewhat unethical, uh, difficult to reason with my own conscience given the inequality that's happening out there, the role as pimps of capitalism. And I've heard you before, I've seen something you've written about the, 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 the coming bright new dawn that you see for advertising where it can start doing good. Appease me. <laughs> um, well, I think I probably started the conversation by saying I, I believe in um, selling things. I believe mm, in people yeah. producing things. I, I do think that we've got an opportunity to do positive good mm. in the world. I introduced the white pencil with you know Andy Sandos's idea with um, yeah. um, Sankey and things when I was president of DNAD, which I feel yeah. I feel has highlighted the opportunity for big marketeers to spend their budgets wisely and do good. Mm. And you know sometimes it can be a bit nauseating, and sometimes I look now or sometimes I wonder what beast I've let out because I feel there might be a sort of cynical race to win awards mm -hmm. for it rather than to actively do good. Yeah. So I get a bit fed up when I think oh you've just done that three times and you've claimed it's this this big thing mm. whereas it's you know it could be a big thing so but I am pleased with that and mm. I do feel that there is a moral conscience that is being woken up with big businesses yeah that they have to pay back their footprint in the world in some way mm. I think Unilever are a brilliant company actually yeah. you know they've always been founded on the principle of doing well by doing good mm. and I worked a lot with them when I was at BBH to put that more into practice and I think Paul Pullman is an amazing leader yeah and he's, he's also said I'm not going to be giving you short-term results forecast because he believes that you have to invest in the community yeah. for the long haul which I totally agree with as yeah, well yeah but you know they're doing things like they're recycling their packaging to make roads in, you know, in Malaysia and things like that so you know these big companies and I think we can be a force for good in that yes there is mind-boggling amounts of advertising which drive me mad and 
I love the irony that last year I gave my son um, a Spotify account for Christmas, which right. didn't have any advertising in it. <laughs> and even on this podcast, people have asked if I want to be sponsored. Like, no, I do no. not. Thank you. Which is why I'm but, earning know, no money. So, yeah, no, but I think you just go, well, we need to make whatever we produce interesting for people to look at and hear, you yeah. know, and that's our responsibility and the clients. And I think, you know, there's a lot of lazy clients who just, they kind of feel we're just going to do it by numbers and this is what you do and it's, and it's not having the inspiration to do a Vorsprung Durch technique, but yeah. just do, okay, well, we drive well. I we do, but, well. you know, you know whatever, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, but, um, but, you know, as I said earlier, you know, if I've got a house for sale, mm. how the hell am I going to sell it? And, no, no, I agree with the principle, it'll never go away. I, also things like too many cooks. Too many people with an opinion. Yeah, now that is killing things by a thousand that, cuts. That you know, is having four idea. people in a room and all the brain power that could be going elsewhere. Yeah, that could be going yeah. to, to, to something else. What about the, the the future of the world? I won't keep you much longer. What about the future <laughs> of the world, though? I mean, do you feel that's just a we, small question? Well, yeah. Well, I said I won't keep you too long. <laughs> the future uh, of the world. Two hours oh. later. No, but, 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 I'll just get my crystal ball out. When we, no, when we have the role and the power that advertising undoubtedly has yeah. to affect change, okay? I mean, I, I often make the comment with clients of, of mine, tell me a brand that's done something very risky and out of the box and it has blown the brand into oblivion. It rarely happens, yeah. right? Brands are very resistant to any advertising. But you can, you, there's lots of campaigns that have blown the doors off and the brand has gone through the roof. So yeah. advertising yeah. can affect massive change. Yeah. John Lewis is a great example. Yeah. We're, we're recording this just as their latest monster under the bed uh, uh, is, is disseminating itself around the world. What, what, what's your view on the future of the world? You said you've got 20-something-year-old boys. Millennial sons. Millennial sons. <laughs> God, that word, millennial. Um, <laughs> Are you, are you optimistic, pessimistic? I, as you probably have noticed, I'm an optimist. I worry about how we're mucking, you know, mucking the planet up with plastics and all that sort of stuff. I think I'm probably an optimist in that I sort of feel that Mother Nature is a big old beast that will either wipe us out before we wipe her out yeah. or, you know, um, people are going to be smart enough to go, hang on, we're going to destroy ourselves if we don't do something about it. Despite life throwing a lot of curveballs at me, I am a wild optimist. And I, I worry, the funny thing is, I probably worry that I've got two white middle class male sons, and I think the world is going to be quite a tough place for them. Yeah. I think, you know, going forward. Difficult because there's an onus on them to. There's well, an no, onus on their privilege. Yeah, and because I think the world has gone, hang on, guys, mm. you have been in a position of privilege for so long. Yeah. Give everybody else a break. And I think that's quite tough. But you know what? I was on the back foot when I first started out and I've survived. So, you know, if, if they're good people and they work hard, they'll be okay. But I do that, I, you know, many, many years ago, I did make that remark about, you know, as a mother of two sons, I, in relationship to the sort of feminist vibe that I worry about their future because I think women will get stronger and it will be harder. But the balance has to be redressed and that's how it has to be. And, um, you know, I'm very proud to have two feminist sons. Great. You know, and they have to be with me. <laughs> what would you, the final question, what would you say to the little gingham dressed girl in Dorset? I, well, I would probably say what John Bartle said to me when he left, which was, and um, he said, um, never lose your enthusiasm. Thanks for
done that. <laughs> I remember when he said it to me, I thought, oh, maybe he doesn't think I'm very good because that's all I've got to offer enthusiasm. And it no, wasn't until exactly. recently that I was like, okay, now I get it. Now I get it. So, well, Zira, thank you for coming on a point with Sean and I love that. I'm kind of going into Wednesday morning a little bit more enthused than I normally am. <laughs> Great to meet you and good luck in the future. Yeah. Thank you. That was great. <laughs>